I kind of tuned out, you know, and that, that inner monologue that we all have kind of kicked in. And I remember thinking, do you know what? He's so right. How we do this bit, something bad has happened, some negative outcome, some bad experience, whether we brought it on ourselves or it's come upon us. In the aftermath of it, how, how do we do this bit? And doing this is going to be really consequential in our campaign. We can think of a lot of teams who on paper are very, very similar. And often we, where we find their outcomes begin to diverge is in the aftermath of their first big crisis. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimising business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors and examples from some of my work over the last few years coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another one of the talks from the Monkhouse and Company 2020 Summit. Today, it's Brendan Hall. We had Brendan on the podcast and he was good enough to come over and speak at the summit. He, he's, a, he's a professional sailor and he found himself the skipper on a clipper yacht in the Round the World race. And so you get an amateur crew. You, get, you don't get the same crew for the whole race. Yeah. You have to bring them together. You have to work hard. But Brendan tells the story. He, he got they got caught in a storm, and he said to me that he was so afraid that he was actually sick with fear, physically sick with fear. And so we talk about he talks about how how he has to pull his crew together, the value of a daily huddle how he has to take his mindset and apply his mindset to the team. He can't share his fear with the team, otherwise it'll infect the team. And so the team survive the storm and they go on to win the race. And the boats are the same, the weather's the same. So the only difference between a skipper and his crew and winning or not winning is is that is the skipper's ability to pull his team together and to overcome disaster and... A mindset of only mis- making mistakes once. So let's make this as good as it can be. And every, if we do make a mistake, it's not about blame. It's about, it's about learning. And the team that has the fewest disasters and recovers the fastest will be the one to, to, to win. It's really the team that learns how to learn, outlearn its competitors will be the team that wins. And so really enjoyed Brendan's talk on the day. And I'm sure you'll enjoy uh, watching it or listening to it on either YouTube or the Melting Pot podcast as a bonus episode. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Um, so my name is Brendan Hall, and about 10 years ago, I had the, the privilege of skippering a yacht in something called the Clipper Round the World Yacht Race. Um, 
And a big theme that emerged for me and my team in that, that 10 month epic adventure was one around emerging stronger from adversity that we faced. You know, you go out to sea and you spend long enough out there, you, you're going to face adversity. And that's part of the thrill of it, in fact. Um, and how you overcome that and how you see it rather than just being a painful shared experience you endure, but as, as a catalyst of positive change, that was really what differentiated the high-performing teams from some of the low-performing teams in, in this race. And it's a story I want to share with you and what that looked like for us, because you sort of imagine emerging stronger, sort of someone walking away, you know, bruised and battered, but with force of will pushing forward. And, and it really didn't look like that at all for us. So I want to share with you a really scary moment that my team and I endured at sea in the middle of the South Atlantic. Actually, we were in the Southern Ocean. But first, I want to set the scene by giving you a little intro to this race that we were competing in when all this stuff happened. It's called the Clip Around the World Race. Just take a look at this. In September 2009, 200 intrepid adventurers set sail from Hull in the United Kingdom. In a race to circumnavigate the globe. They represented contrasting backgrounds, nationalities and ages. 40% of them had never stepped on a boat before. These rookies were taking part in the epic journey that is the Clipper Round the World Race. The tears in my eyes is incredible. They had to take on the elements. I am probably the most scared I've ever been in my life. Enough of this shit. Crammed together for up to a month at a time, they had to cope with each other. You know, it's all made in the best possible yeah, taste. You always have to say something. Well, you don't sit in your bunk and think about it. However, go and sit on your bunk and think about it. It was a pulsating voyage. Yes! Full of emotion. I think it's a bit joke going, sorry. I'm not going to talk on camera. Probably about as bad a night as you can imagine. And packed with heart-stopping drama. <laughs> When preparing to abandon ship. If you want a standard sailing program, don't watch this. If you want human adventure played out on the high seas, this is must see TV. This is like the wettest, wildest fairground ride you've ever been on, but you can't stop and you can't get off. So, the clip around the world race. Um, I've got some application forms in my bag, don't worry, come see me afterwards. It really sells it, I know. Um, no, but, right, so it's raced every two years, takes ten months to do a circumnavigation of the planet, and it's raced on ten of these identical boats. In the sailing world, we call it a matched fleet, which means that any result in the race is down to the teams sailing rather than the vessels, and anyone can sign up and do this. It's open to the world. Each team, about 45 people, of whom 20 are on the boat at any one time. And they're paying you know, a, a big fee to do it. Got to leave their businesses uh, or work for the time they're away. Got to leave their families. And when they uh, you know, sign up, they've got to sign a no BS death waiver. You know, there have been fatalities on this race. It's not a wrapped in cotton wool experience. And um, the, uh, the, the, each of the teams is led by a single professional skipper, of which I was one, and, and this is my yacht here called Spirit of Australia. And I want to tell you a story 
about the first moment of really true adversity that my team and I faced and how we, uh, we came through it and the, the big learn we got out of it. And I think this is analogous to the, the crisis that we went through with COVID lockdown and now as the world's beginning to sort of normalize um, and our decision-making options open up, you know, the, the, the way we can move forward. So we left Rio de Janeiro on our second leg of the race, sailing from Rio to Cape Town. Now, the fastest way to get from Rio to Cape Town isn't to sail directly there, it's to dive south, head into the Southern Ocean, pick up the big weather systems that spin around the bottom of the world and use them to catapult you eastward towards Cape Town. 18 days it was going to take us. Now, we're 10 days into that leg, below 40 degrees south, so we're in the Southern Ocean, and we have our first big catastrophic disaster of the race. An enormous crash jibe, wipeout in 55 knots of wind, the boat slew right over onto its side, decks awash, crew hanging on by their safety tethers, sails in the water, most important, sails ripped to shreds, all this in the middle of the night, but shaking violently, people shouting, chaos, confusion, without the benefit of night vision. I mean, it was terrifying, right? And in that moment, you know, this is where I needed to step up as a leader. First time I'd ha had to deal with something like this, and you know, I did a bunch of psychometrics before the race that said, you know, <laughs> You're good at dealing with crises. You can quickly prioritize and call to action. You never really know until you're there, right? And this is it. This is where I had to show my, uh, my resilience as a leader. So with that word, just top of mind, I want you to, to watch this little masterclass in, uh, in resilience. Probably as bad, as bad a night as you can imagine for a, a sailing skipper. We're just going to ride it out until morning. Um, we've basically stopped racing. We're, you know, we're, we're out of this race um, for now. But spirit of Australia's problems don't end there. For three days and nights, they're battered mercilessly. And then, just when they feel things can't get any worse, they suffer a second, more serious crash jive. We don't deserve this. We really don't deserve this. Three nights in a row, three disasters. Um, I don't know what we've done. Um, it's just so frustrating for me and for everybody. You know, we didn't need another knock to uh, out of confidence. So, um. Yeah, so what are you thinking? Like, uh, like Churchill without the cigar, right? Like, what a, what a strong George, steely eyed. No. When the, the cameraman, right, who took that footage, he showed me it in the, in the viewfinder with his camera a few days later, like, it took my breath away. Because I'm not a leader who, who would self-identify as talking with that defeatist kind of victim language. You know, what on earth was I saying? What I do remember really vividly was, was the, uh, the day after all this happened, we had a daily meeting. Every, every day we had one. And, and I was saying the same kinds of things. You know, we don't deserve this. This is unfair. Sort of, what have we done, universe, to bring this bad karma on ourselves? And I was casting real mood shadow over the team. You know, that, that, that was how other people were starting to respond to this. You know, taking their cues from me emotionally, having gone through this crisis and not dealt with it well. And, and it, that was becoming the sentiment amongst many of the crew until it got to one of my team. And he was, he was a classic introvert, very bookish, ran a, ran a medical practice in his life, he sure never spoke up much. 
And, and he stands up and steadies himself on a winch and starts getting really sweary with all of us. Tells us to shut up. I can't bear this. I can't bear to hear you talking like this. I can't bear to hear you know, He actually was with his pathetic. And it was sort of the jolt we all needed, you know, totally out of character for this guy. And he says, right, so I've got this idea. I read it in a book about a year ago, and it's kind of come back to me now. And so he starts telling us about this idea called growth mindset, which, because you're in Dom's group, I'm sure you're, it's on LinkedIn on the daily, right? Back then, the book had just been written. None of us had heard of it. And so he, he says it to us just like this. He goes, guys, bad stuff's going to happen. We're in a round-the-world yacht race for amateurs, for God's sake. What are we expecting? Going to go around the world? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's statistically inevitable, given the inherent risks in what we're doing, the duration of time we're at sea. Like, you know, we, this is just the reality of it. And when bad stuff like this happens, we've got to make sure we learn something from it. You know, we don't just flog ourselves with nettles. Hopefully it goes better next time. It's, we, we've got to do some team learning. You know, and it was, it was so right. You know, and, and people are nodding, going, yeah, that is the conversation we need to be having right now, not, not just kind of doing this. Um, and so little by little, people start opening up. And, you know, what could we learn from these last three days of hell we've been through? And I was there kind of drawing out input. And, you know, what do you think? What do you think? And I kind of tuned out, you know, and that, that inner monologue that we all have kind of kicked in. And I remember thinking, do you know what? He's so right. How we do this bit, something bad has happened, some negative outcome, some bad experience, whether we brought it on ourselves or it's come upon us. In the aftermath of it, how, how do we do this bit? And doing this is going to be really consequential in our campaign. We can think of a lot of teams who on paper are very, very similar. And often we, where we find their outcomes begin to diverge is in the aftermath of their first big crisis and how they handle it. And it struck me that we don't learn from our experiences on their own. We learn from reflecting on our experiences. It doesn't happen automatically. It's a deliberate practice. And it's one thing to do it, you know, it's like when, when we, we make a mistake ourselves and all that processing about the lesson learning can happen in one head, that's one thing. But if it involves a, a team of people and some kind of shared, you know, endeavor, it involves a conversation. A conversation that can become a difficult one because credibility, trust, blame can creep in, egos creep in, you know, it can become a really difficult thing to have. But, but having those conversations and doing them in, in a constructive way is, is one of the most important tasks that a team can do and a key to emerging stronger from any kind of crisis. And so that's what we did. We, we, we talked about this and we, we brought out all the learnings. And it was one of my crew, she, she summarized it beautifully at the end. She said, we need to make a promise to each other that we will only learn the hard lessons once. Which, you know, on the surface, sounds like, you know, who wouldn't be on board with that? It's a lovely little sandbite type um, you know, piece of wisdom. But the more I thought about that, the more I thought that's just, that's going to be so important to our campaign. Because there's, there's this old saying in your race, and I contend it holds true in business as well. You don't win a race, you lose a race. You make the right decisions consistently, you minimize the F-ups, and, you know, you'll do pretty well. Stay in your lane, focus on doing the right things consistently. Um, so, yeah, how, how we did this was going to be important. So, so we made that promise, and we, we sailed on. We limped into Cape Town. We arrived in seventh place out of 10 boats. Now, I thought we were going to be dead last, but there are other boats damaged even worse than we were. And after a few days for everyone to go away, gather their thoughts, reflect on things, we got back together in this little um, meeting room above the bar of the Cape Town Yacht Clubs, where they teach little kids to do dinghy sayings. We sat behind these little desks. Um, and when, when I arrived in Cape Town, I had become really enamored with this idea of growth mindset, which is what I'd found out it was called, and I'd read part of the book, and it was just sort of coming to prominence as an idea. And um, I emailed the crew and said, right, when we get together, what I want us to do is to rewind the tape back to the start of the race, narratively, play through all the events and incidents that had happened that perhaps we didn't do any deliberate learning from, kind of revisit them, extract what we can, clear the backlog, bring us up to the present moment, and then we're going to try and do it in real time from here on forward. So have a think about these things in advance. And you know what? The team that came into that room was not the team that I recognized, having been primed in that kind of way. The defensive shields were up. 
right? People were on the back foot. People had their arguments ready. And I think that's a natural response to it. The book very handily tells you that's what you can expect because of blame. People are really worried about blame. They're worried that stinging finger of personal blame, which is not the same as you know, our, the responsibility we have in our role, is going to be pointed at them. It's the same in business. Why didn't we hit our numbers? Why didn't that marketing initiative work? You know, what's, what's the story? Explain it. Um, and you know, we, we go to great lengths to recoil from blame. I spoke to a pediatric psychologist about this who said the way we respond to blame in our adult lives often can be traced back to our first six years of life. And as much as we can intellectualize it as adults and it being part of responsibility and accountability, when we feel under blame, we can just rerun scripts from earlier in our life. That's something we, you know, it runs deep with people is my point, I guess. So I, I knew I had to circumvent the blame response that people would be feeling. Um, so I did two things, nicked these ideas. You know, I nick a lot of ideas. Um, the first was I, uh, I added a value. I had seven values which we carried around on a flip chart and, and uh, put up whenever we met like this, and I just added an eighth one. And it was that in this team, we will only use blame in the event of gross negligence or malice. Everything else we're going to treat as a learning experience. Which again, you know, it's a nice soundbitey type thing. You know, who wouldn't be on board with that? But I, I work with a lot of organizations now. I have something like that written on this lovely colored poster in a hallway somewhere. And it's one thing to do that. And it's another thing to actually live it in the meeting room, so to speak. Um, so I had to do it for real. And, and doing that for real was... I nicked this idea off the Red Arrows. So for those unfamiliar, Red Arrows, I mean, amazing team, right? What I love about them most is how they debrief after an air show. They put on what appears to us to be a flawless display of aerobatics, land back at the airfield, the pilots quickly grab a drink of water, still in their suits, go into their debrief room, and they, they watch a video back of the air show they've just put on, and it's a leader of that team. Call sign Red One, he or she stands up in front of them and starts self-critiquing. This is what I got wrong. This is where I need to tighten up my formation, you know, whatever it is. Tighten, you know, infinitesimally small things. But it's about setting a mindset. And there's an expectation that everyone else will follow suit. And by doing that, by doing that, and they're doing these things every day throughout the summer months, they, they sort of plant a flag in the sand that just reminds everyone no one needs to save face in this room. No one needs to manage their status. We're here to learn lessons in a no-blame, just learning environment so that tomorrow we can put on even more, you know, excellent display. So in that same kind of way, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm usually the, the leader that speaks last, taking everyone's input on first. This is where I've got to go first. You've got to set the expectation that you're not just going to expect other people to share their vulnerability. You've got to go first. So, uh, yeah, you know, it was hard. I remember feeling quite emotional about it at the start. You know, the, the, the film reel, the cynical film reel I played out in my, my, my head was, you know, I, I sort of say, this is what I, I learned. This is what I got wrong. This is what I think I contributed to this you know, problem that we had. And this is what I'm going to do differently next time. And, and for people to kind of go, yeah, just like we were saying, right? You know, it's finally he's admitting it. Um, it didn't go like that. The, the thing I noticed, you know, was, was the, the shoulders go down, like the body language relaxed. And people could sort of see, okay, so he's for real about this. Like that, that finger of blame is being taken off the table. We sat in that room the whole day. It was just meant to be a half-day thing, right? And, and we, we talked about our campaign, put flip charts all over the wall, did all that sort of stuff, and stop, start, continue. And, and we came away with just what became the fundamentals of our campaign from there on because we were able to have that conversation and we were able to have it constructively because it wasn't clouded with blame, ego, and those other things that can creep in and make a, a conversation about what's gone wrong, a toxic one. Now, I work with a lot of organizations, large and small, across all sectors, and I, I see this a lot, you know, and blame can exist within pockets. I think there's probably not such a prevalence of it here just based on the, the audience I'm talking to and where we are and the, the fact we're working with Dom. Um, and it can exist within pockets within all organizations. But, you know, there's that blame cycle. At the moment, I think that inner monologue people have about what's the cost to me 
there's a slightly greater disincentive to speak up, talk straight, admit fault because of the, the financial survival people are feeling around COVID. And possibly in other organizations, people are feeling like the boss has got two lists, right? The people who are staying on the bus and the people who are going to be getting off the bus as things shrink in right size. And they want to make sure they present the best possible face to you because they want to be on that, that first list. So just know that there's that, that higher disincentive for speaking up, which is the leader's job to be that person that reaches out, facilitates those, and makes what might be an implicit no-blame culture really explicit. Reminds people at the start of the meeting, we're not going to use blaming language in here. We're, going to, we're here to learn lessons. Uh, you know, we're not going to um, be casting blame. And you're going to lead by example there. So um, I suppose th these are the questions I'd, I'd leave with you to ponder. You know, grab, I'll, I'll make sure you get a copy of this or take a picture of it now. But that piece of wisdom at the top there was one that I was given by a, a business leader. And I think it's a brilliant piece of wisdom that there's a hierarchy to speaking up. The higher up you are, the easier you think it is to do. And at the top of every organization, it's expected that you, there's healthy challenge, there's um, you know, batting ideas back and forward, and it can be done in a constructive way. And actually, that's, that's an important part of your job. But it would be a mistake to assume that that's a monolithic approach. And as you maybe go down and find people who are more financially precarious, that's not the case at all. And just to register that, that um, you might need to um, you know, focus on those areas more. But yeah, you know, how, are you, how are you encouraging your people to speak up without that fear of blame or consequence? And, and finally, you know, how are you going to take time now with all the lessons that you've learned that you know, we, we might go back into lockdown? What have you learned the first time so you can quickly implement it the second time? Um, you know, as opposed to just bouncing from one challenge to the next. So to uh, my big learnings from that part of the race were all around that growth mindset. We, we don't learn from our experience alone. We learn from reflecting on it. And that takes time. It takes time and a bit of space, and also the only way we're going to have those conversations and make them productive is if that blame is taken off the table and people understand that and that's made really clear to them. So that was our emerging stronger moment. It doesn't sound glorious. Like, uh, it wasn't sort of anything sort of heroic out at sea. It was us sat behind these little desks in a room above a bar. But you know what? It was this conversation that enabled us to then go out at sea and, and continually improve and strive and, and excel. And we sailed out of Cape Town. And over the course of the rest of this race, from Cape Town, across the Southern Ocean, up through Asia, across the Pacific, through the canal, back up the Atlantic, and then eventually back to the eventual race finish in the majestic chocolatey waters of the River Humber. <laughs> we put in our best and most consistent performances. We cleaned up, and here's my boat. We're sailing across the final finish line there. Boom, photo finish. And um, as we do, we, we celebrate joyously because we kept everyone safe. You know, I kept that promise to all my crew's families that I'd bring their, 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 their loved ones home. We kept the boat safe, returned it in good order, important for sailors to return the vessel, being its temporary stewards, and we'd won the race. And we hadn't won it just by a little bit. We'd won it by a blowout margin, one of the largest margins a race had ever been won by in its history. And I'll caveat that immediately by saying it wasn't because I was a brilliant strategist or you know the best skilled sailor it wasn't because my crew had superhuman abilities skills or, or physical strength or anything like that it came down to us treating this race as a race of 10 teams not a race of 10 yachts for me as a leader it came down to 80 percent people skills leadership skills communication skills 20 percent hard sailing skills that's kind of what got my foot in the door and primary among all those things that sort of enabled that victory, I would say it was us being able to emerge stronger from the moments of adversity of, that we faced, of which there were many, but being able to have the conversation skills to pick them apart, 
extract the learning and do it in a no-blame way and, and, and incorporate that into how we want to move forward. And I would contend that a big part of what's going to determine your success and, and the path you take over the next 12 months is going to be around how you can enable those same conversations in your organizations as well. So uh, here we are. Final part of the race, getting our, our first place winner's pennant on the, um, on the podium there. So uh, I would say the big, big lesson I learned from the race, the key, the key learning was that there's no such thing as a finish leader. We're all on a journey. We're all making our mistakes. It's the ability to talk about them openly, show some vulnerability with our team, and, and, and capture the sort of the group wisdom. That's, uh, is what allowed us to emerge stronger from all the adversity that we faced. So uh, no stirring quote from Einstein or Churchill or anything to finish. Guys, I just want to say thank you so much for giving me some time this afternoon to share my story with you. I, I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate you all. Thank you. Thank you.